my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. But in the 13th century of the Christian calendar, the High Lama of the Great Sakya Monastery, whose name was Chögye Pakpa, went to China to become the religious instructor of the Chinese Emperor Sechen. And in the Water Bull year, 1253 AD, 1797 years from the death of Lord Buddha, he returned and became the ruler of all three Chogas or provinces of Tibet, the first of the priest kings of our country. For the next 96 years, this country was ruled by a succession of 20 Lamas of Sakya and after that for 86 years from 1349 to 1435 AD by a succession of 11 Lamas of Pamudrukpa lineage. Then there was a return to a secular monarchy. Four generations of Rinpong kings ruled from 1435 to 1565 and three Tsangpa kings from 1566 to 1641. It was then in the water horse year, 1642 AD, 2186 years from the death of Lord Buddha, that a Dalai Lama received temporal power over the whole of the country and the present form of Tibetan government known as Gandepota was founded. Since then, for over 300 years, 10 successive Dalai Lamas have been the spiritual and temporal rulers of Tibet and during their absence of minority, lay and monk regions have carried on the government in their name. It was the fifth Dalai Lama who first assumed these temporal powers. The first Dalai Lama had been a disciple of the founder of the Gelukpa sect, Tsongkhapa, and both these incarnations were exceptionally learned men, the first in spiritual matters and the fifth in both spiritual and temporal matters. In 1652 AD, the first Manchu Emperor of China, Shunzi, invited the fifth Dalai Lama, whom he regarded as his religious instructor, to visit China and received him there with homage as King of Tibet. For two and a half centuries of the rule of the Dalai Lamas, until about the end of the 19th Christian century, there was a reciprocal personal relationship between the Dalai Lamas and the emperors of China. A relationship of religious leadership on one side and a rather tenuous secular leadership on the other. The emperor appointed two officials called Ambans to represent him in Lhasa. They exercised some authority, but they exercised it through the government of the Dalai Lama and in the course of time, their authority gradually declined. It was during the reign of my great predecessor, the 13th Dalai Lama, that Tibet first began to expand its international relations. I've already told how the 13th Dalai Lama improved the living standards of our people and how he reorganized our army. He also sent students abroad to study, established small hydroelectric 
plants and industries, introduced postal and telegraph services, issued stamps, new gold and silver coins, and currency notes. He also made changes in the curriculum of religious studies in Gelugpa monasteries. And during his reign, Tibet made a number of international arrangements. Toward the end of the 19th century, the British government of India began to want to establish trade with Tibet, and various minor border disputes had also arisen between Tibet and British territory in the Himalayas. The British had to decide whether to negotiate these matters with Tibet itself or with China. Except for a single document in 1247, no treaty had been signed between Tibet and China since the stone pillars had been inscribed in the year 1822. So there was not much to guide the British choice. However, in 1893, they signed a convention with China which fixed the boundary and gave the British certain trading rights in the south of Tibet. But the Tibetan government simply disregarded this convention. When boundary marks were erected by British and Chinese commissioners, the Tibetans waited till they had gone and then took the marks away again. And when the British applied for their trade concessions, the government told them convention had only been signed by China and had no force whatever in Tibet. The Tibetans in their easy-going nature had had the Chinese Ambans living with them for generations, but this was the first time that any other power had wanted to make a formal international agreement with Tibet, and it had never occurred to Tibetans that the mere presence of the Ambans in Lhasa might give the Chinese government an opportunity to claim a right to sign agreements on Tibet's behalf. Nor had they thought until then that the Chinese wished to deprive them of their independence. The British became increasingly irritated at not receiving their trading rights and no doubt also at losing their boundary marks. Lord Curzon, the British Viceroy of India, said he regarded Chinese suzerainty over Tibet as a constitutional fiction, a political affection which has only been maintained because of its convenience to both parties. In 1903, he sent a military force to Lhasa. It halted for a long time on the way. And while it was halted, the Amban sent a message to the British commander to say that he would come to meet him. But the Tibetan government would not allow the Amban to leave Lhasa. The Tibetan army fought the British troops and were beaten. The Dalai Lama fled towards the east and the British advanced to Lhasa in 1904 and signed a convention with the Tibetan government. In the Dalai Lama's absence, the convention was signed by the regent using the Dalai Lama's seal and also sealed by the cabinet, the National Assembly and the monasteries of Drepung, Sera and Gandhin. Tibet, in fact, had made a formal international agreement as a sovereign power. 
it confirmed the boundary and trading rights and among other things it undertook that no foreign power should be allowed to intervene in Tibetan affairs without the consent of the British government. China was not mentioned at all in the document and by this omission it must have been included among the other unspecified foreign powers. As soon as the convention was signed, the British forces marched out of Tibet and never threatened us again. The Chinese government never raised any objection to this treaty. Two years later, in 1906, the British seemed to have had some fear that the Chinese might interfere with their trading concessions and they made an agreement in which the Chinese government formally accepted the Anglo-Tibetan Treaty. So the remnant of Chinese power in Tibet was acknowledged to have ended, so far as international agreements had no worth. However, the British were inconsistent. This was a period when Russia and Britain were rivals for spheres of influence in Asia, and in 1907 they signed an agreement in which they both undertook not to interfere with Tibet and only to negotiate with Tibet through China as an intermediary. This agreement, in contradiction to the others, and in spite of Britain's experience that China had no practical authority in our country, recognized that China had suzerainty over Tibet.